All right, just a, uh, as we see the two Jeffs are talking, uh, if everybody take their seat, we're going to get ready uh, to start. Uh, just a reminder, after service today is the, uh, is there's a, a potluck luncheon, feel free to come down. After service, potluck luncheon, free to come down. I was told to say that. Apparently, I didn't know. <laughs> uh, John is uh, John Weathersby is preaching through uh, Genesis, starting in chapter thirty-seven, verse twelve, through chapter thirty-eight. And I will be reading that. So, if you would turn there in your scripture, then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem and is. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? And he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have journeyed from here, for I heard them saying, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Then they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. So now come and let us kill him and cast him into one of the pits. And we will say, A wild beast devoured devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and delivered him out of the hands, out of their hands, and said, Let us not strike down his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not put forth your hand against him, that he might deliver him out of their hands to return him to his father. Now it happened when Joseph reached his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and cast him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted up their eyes and saw, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, going to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what gain is it that we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened. Then some Midianite trainers passed, traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to, Ish, to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. Then he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please recognize it, whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and she named him Onan. And she bore still another son, and she named him Shelah. And it was Chezib that she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go in into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a seed for your brother. And Onan knew that 
the seed would not be his, and it happened that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted it on the ground in order not to give seed to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid lest he also die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. Then Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, and Hira the Adulamite. Then it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah, Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments from herself and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and she sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. Then Judah saw her, and he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was the daughter-in-law. She was his daughter-in-law, and she said, What will you be what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went, and she removed her veil from herself and put on her widow's garments. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So he asked the man, the men of her place, saying, Where is the cult prostitute who was by the road of Enam? But they said, There has been no cult prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no cult prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. Behold, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it happened about three months later that it was told to Judah, saying, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please recognize this and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now it happened at this time she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. And it happened while she was giving birth, one put, put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And then it happened as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. She said, what a breach you have made for yourselves. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zira. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father God, thank you for this time that we have to hear your word. Please be with John as he exhorts your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for that reading. Always a blessing to hear large chunks of scripture. Um, often we'll read smaller portions, but that's certainly a blessing. Thank you, John, for that reading. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was uh, Pastor John Piper talking on scripture memory, uh, talked about being using scripture memory, hiding it away in your heart that you might not sin against God, and you talking about memorizing short, quick passages as little daggers and large uh, passages as, as longer swords in the battle against sin. And so, um, love the word, love to hear it, excited to walk through Genesis 37 through 38 with you this morning. Um, today, I think what we're going to see is a picture of sovereignty in this passage, in these passages that really sets like concrete. Um, they settle who God is and in our minds and in our hearts. They really set a, an understanding of who God is if we spend time looking at what's happening in these passages, looking at God's sovereign plan flow through. Um, and I, sometimes we, we, we say sovereignty and we don't talk about it. So I want to talk a little bit about when I'm saying sovereignty, 
what I mean, and I'll do that by way of an illustration. If you've been here for some time, you've, you've heard me talk about it, so settle in. Um, one time when I, when I lived in, in the state of New Mexico, I was with some friends. I was going to something called the Salt River, and in the Salt River, you rent an inner tube, a, a, just a big rubber tube, and you ride in a bus, and that bus takes you upstream at this Salt River in, in New Mexico, or Arizona, forgive me. In Arizona, they get excited when there's flowing water because there's not very much water. And so um, you rent these inner tubes, you tie them together, and people float down the river. It's quite an event. Sometimes people put plywood, bring marine batteries, set up stereos on these things, and, and it's a good time. A friend of mine was driving, and we were going onto this Indian reservation. And so in, in the United States, generally speaking, Indian reservations are, are sovereign. They maintain their own government. They're not, uh, they're, they're not subjected necessarily to a lot of the, the laws of the, of the state. And so um, we had a police helicopter very interested in having a conversation with us as we were driving onto the reservation. And we didn't realize that the police helicopter had been following us for some time. And when we got out at this uh, Salt River to get on the bus, they were on the loudspeaker yelling at my friend, driver, step out of the vehicle. And we were very surprised because we hadn't heard them following us the whole time yelling commands. And so at the same time, some uh, tribal authorities from the reservation came up on a golf cart and they said, what are you guys doing today? And we said, well, we were gonna go down the uh, Salt River, but apparently we've commanded some attention from your friends above. And they said, oh, don't worry about those guys. And they waved them off. And that is a picture of sovereignty. Um, in any other scenario, we would have ended up talking to a ton of state police or some other things, but a sovereign authority stepped in and there was nothing they can do. And it's so important to understand that God's sovereignty is all-consuming. God's sovereignty is absolutely everything. When we say that God is sovereign, there is nothing that can impact sovereignty. There's no, if, if, if God says that it will be, it will be. And this story, this huge chunk of scripture that's devoted to telling this story which really is a telling of a few of the patriarchs is designed to call our attention to demand our attention to the very sovereignty of God because we know from from our New Testament reading we know that God is the same yesterday today and tomorrow and so God is sovereign across all Testaments, both Testaments, any revelation. God is sovereign now like God was sovereign then. And so what that does for us is it helps us to understand that no matter the situation that we're in even today, that God's sovereignty is over that. Which means only one of two things can be true. Either he has caused it or he has allowed it. And that's it. And so when I complain about the circumstances of my life, I am effectively complaining against God because he has either caused it or he has allowed it. That should be convicting because that can be a lot of things. That can be my temperament when I am a whiny toddler who's bratty towards people and has a negative attitude because I don't feel good, because I don't have food in my tummy. I'm complaining against God. When I don't have enough rest, and so I'm overly bristly with you, I'm complaining against God. And so, because my heart is, as Jeremiah 17, 9 describes it, deceitful and wicked above all things, who can know it? I get to temper that against the truth of who God is. And so these passages are like concrete reminding us and establishing in our minds and in our hearts that God is sovereign and God is good. His purposes are good. Even when we can look on circumstances in a moment and say, this is, this is, this is perhaps not good, God has a good purpose in it. I'm tempted to call on Romans 8.28, but I've been reminded that we've been using that rather a lot lately. So I would call your attention to Romans 8:28, which says that God uses all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. No matter how much we use it, it's still true. And so by God's grace, this book of Genesis that gives this huge portion of scripture about the story of Joseph, which interestingly seems to get abruptly broken 
by Genesis chapter 38, which comes out of nowhere and talks about Judah and some about Judah's lineage, some about a strange story that happens with Judah and his sons, and then goes right back into the story of Joseph. It's a, it should, it should you know, it's, if you read through it, you're like, wait, what just happened? Why did we do that? Why is that there? And so what we get is a building of our faith through this story. So let's, let's jump in. We'll look at Genesis chapter 37. We're starting in verse 12, um, picking up, of course, from verse 11 last week. That's how the math works on that. So starting in verse 12, we read, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Sechem. Now, the careful Bible student that you are, you may recognize this mention of Sechem. If you think back to Simon and Levi in Genesis chapter 34, they killed the men of Sechem while they were sore from circumcision. I love the Bible. It hides from nothing and it speaks truth. It takes... These, it's important, I think, to remember that the, these brothers that we're talking about, these 12 men are, are the tribes of Israel. And if you look at their stories, this is insane. The kinds of things that these guys are doing, you would never pick the... If you could, if you could see down a quarter of time and say, let me pick some good folk to paint my story against, this wouldn't be it. Right? Well, why, why would you take the guys who's whose sister is going to be raped, and so they convince a whole group of people that they're going to be able to marry her if, if they all become circumcised. And then while they're sore from circumcision, attack and kill all of them. We see God's sovereignty through that, sometimes God using people in spite of what they do, in spite of who they are. And when we understand sovereignty, I believe that we get an opportunity to step back and say, I don't know if I want to be, no, let me change that. I don't want to be used in spite of myself. Now, I know that God chooses the foolish things of the world to conform the wise. I know that my most righteous acts are like a filthy rag before God. But in Christ, as a redeemed person, with good works that are set before me, I can desire for those things and want to bring God glory and honor by the way that I live my life, not of myself, only because of Christ. Which means in some instances, when we're going about our day, maybe something particularly frustrating happens. And because we are but dust... Maybe we hit our finger. Maybe we're building something and we destroyed it. And we're frustrated with ourselves in that moment. And someone says something and it frustrates us. And so we're very mean towards that person. It's an opportunity in Christ to apologize to that person. Because we're but dust. We're flawed. We're just creatures. Sometimes we forget that about ourselves. We think we become saved. Or perhaps we think we build up a pile of works that's so high we can climb our way to God and he will notice us above the noise of the world. Or maybe we think we become saved and now he's regenerated us, he's renewed us, he's put a heart of flesh inside us and so we do good works to continue earning his favor. Like a, like a father who we want to impress or whose favor we want to earn. But this is not how the scripture paints salvation nor the christian life and so we get an opportunity to look at sovereignty and set in our minds what it means that god is sovereign and who i am in that truth so we get the truth of these boys are going to pasture out in the area of sechem where they'd killed the men that were sore from circumcision so that's where they decide to go apparently pasture the flock maybe things have become peaceful Maybe there's been some forgiveness in the land over that event. Maybe this is a sign because they're, you know, uh, scholars would differ, but say 50 miles that they've gone away from home with the flocks, a several uh, day journey, maybe five day journey they are now away from where they live to feed and pasture these flocks. Maybe it's an early sign of famine that's coming on the land. They're having to go so far. They're having to drive the animals that far for water or for food. We don't know. But we know that they're out that far. And so in verse 13, Israel says to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Sechem? Now, why does it come like a question like that? Well, I don't know. Why do people speak the way they speak? Why do people in Pennsylvania not use to be verbs? Uh, your room needs clean. You, listen, if you're from Pennsylvania, I want to encourage you. That doesn't mean anything. Your room needs cleaned is missing words that are needed to make that make sense. 
And I know some of you are very confused and you don't understand what I'm saying, but it's true. And so the scriptures capture the way that people talk. They capture, it captures people's personalities because it actually happened. Why did he say, are not your brothers pasture the flock in Sechem? I don't know. Why did my mom say, who wants pancakes? Everyone wants pancakes. So he asks, are not your brothers pasture the flock at Sechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am, familiar language, here I am, he's willing to serve, he's interested in serving his father's wishes, he desires to please his father, remember he's this, the, the favored son, right, we talked about that last week, that was causing some, some strife in the family, that, that dad had a favored son, even though dad came from a family that also had strife because of the favored son, not only was he the favored son, he also wore a garment to remind everyone that he was the favored son. This probably became very annoying to see him wake up every morning and put that coat on and walk out into the living room and do a big stretch wearing the daddy loves me jacket. But so it was. He said, here I am. Verse 14. So he said, go now and see if it's well with your brothers in the flock and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Sechem. Why? Why did he want to send him out to the field? Was it because he, he would bring back an honest report? Maybe. Was it because he wanted to make sure that there were no problems in the land? Maybe. The scripture doesn't tell us, but off he goes. In verse 15, we see that a, a man found him wandering in the fields. Now, this is where I want to, to hit pause for a moment and say we want to start to notice the sovereign hand of God causing things to happen. A man found him wandering in the fields. There will be a few other circumstances, coincidental circumstances that will orient the direction of where this story will go that will serve God's purposes. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Verse 16, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, that's a good, good thing that he heard them say that. It's a good thing that Joseph ran into him. It's a good thing that the man asked him, what are you doing around here? Uh, what, what are you doing in these Canaanite lands? What are you doing, little, little, little fellow with a nice coat, wandering around in the fields? I'm looking for my brothers. Oh, well, I happened to overhear them, and I heard exactly where they were going. Why don't you go that way? Now he's going out another day, two-day journey. He's going further north, even further from his father, which becomes important. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've been on a couple-day journey, and I'm just out looking for the guys to see where they're at, maybe I just come back home saying, I don't know, Dad. I don't know where they're at. They're not where they're supposed to be. That's the report, okay? But no, he continues on obediently to go see where, where the brothers are. He listens to the, the stranger here, and he goes to Dothan. So he's maybe 50 miles away, wandering around, looking for his brothers. Now, I don't know how situationally aware Joseph was in terms of the family, because he did tell the dream twice. If you remember from last week, he came and he told the dream about all, how all the sheaves were going to gather around, they were all going to bow down, right? And everybody got frustrated. Sometime later, he wakes up from another dream, and he goes and he tells the story. This time, his, his mother and his father are going to bow down. And he tells it, and his dad rebukes him sharply. Um, the brothers, not only do they dislike him, they want to kill him. They hate him. So now he's going to journey out five, six days, 50-plus miles away from his dad to go find his brothers in a field somewhere. I don't know about you, but I would be a little bit paranoid at this point, right? Minimally, this is going to be a rough greeting. He's going to be left hanging from his underwear by a door. Something's going to happen. The brothers are not going to leave him alone, right? There's nobody to, you know, you ever hear siblings like, I don't know what it is. The younger sibling always comes up, does something annoying, runs away squealing, right? As a parent, you ignore it because you figure they probably deserve 
what's going to happen next, right? They were probably being annoying, so this is going to be an object lesson, and so you let it happen. When they're five days, six days away, no one can intervene. And that's kind of where we're headed. But by way of reminder, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brother, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. That, that's such an important almost footnote at the end of verse 4 of Genesis 37. They could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even talk to him. They couldn't even look at him and have a conversation about the weather. They couldn't even say, wow, it's a nice warm winter day, Joe, because they hated him so much. They couldn't even do that. And so these are the brothers who orchestrated the slaughter of the Sechemites. And he's going to see these guys. You know, they're not, a, they're not a soft bunch, necessarily. They're capable of a lot. Verse 18. They saw him from afar. You know, probably bopping along. Walk, you know, walking in some way. You ever had somebody that's just so annoying? Everything they do, it just bothers you. Um, I, I know some people that can't stand the sound of chewing, right? And so you sit next to them, and they're working a piece of gum. Like they're working that thing so hard, you feel like somehow the laws of physics are going to break down, and that gum is going to lose all its elasticity, and it's just going to dissolve. Like the universe can't handle this kind of incessant chomping. And then the sounds that come out. Right? It's like a rubbery squishing with like water and jello. It's everything about it's awful. They can't stand their brother, I think, in that kind of way, but amplified. Because it's not just super annoying to sit next to, they hate him. And so they see him from afar. And so they're, ah, God, everything about that kid annoys me. He's wearing that jacket again. Take that thing off. Probably not frequently laundered. They, yeah, it probably smells awful. So they see him coming, and what do they do? They conspire against him to kill him. Scripture eliminates any curiosity about what they want to do. They, are, they have now decided they are going to kill their brother, and they mean it. Verse 19, they say to each other, here comes this dreamer. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and we'll throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. They haven't forgotten. The ember of frustration and anger towards him is still burning. And they say, well, we'll see what happens with his dreams when we kill him and throw him in that hole. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued them, him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Basically saying, no, you're not going to kill him. This isn't going to happen. Well, Reuben is apparently becoming kind of a moral guy. I mean, he slept with his stepmother, and that was a, that was a knock against him in his dad's eyes. Um, but maybe he's trying to recover now. So let's, let's see what Reuben's up to. Verse 21, when he heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Verse 22, and Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Footnote, he did that so that he could rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. This is a conniving group of people. Not only are the brothers going to kill him, they decide that we're going to kill him, and we're going to say a beast did it. I mean, how horrible. I mean, talk about no regard. Forget about regard for Joseph and your own brother, your own flesh and blood and killing someone, all that. You don't even care about your dad. You're going to kill one of his kids and you're going to go up to him and hand him a tattered rag and say an animal destroyed this kid that you love? These guys care about nothing but themselves. Why? Because they're frustrated that he chews gum loud. They're mad. <laughs> they're mad that he has these dreams that say that they're going to bow down to him and they're going to kill him now. And this is the plan and then they're going to do it. Remember, these are the people that killed all the Sechemites, okay, all the males. So Reuben comes up with a plan. He's going to restore 
the brother to his father. So, so in Reuben's mind, he's going to get him out of this hole. Right? They're going to throw him in the hole. They're thinking they're going to leave him there. He's going to take him out of the hole, jog him home for five days, and say, look who I found. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, in case we forgot. Yep, he's wearing it. Five-day journey, wearing the Daddy Loves Me jacket. Verse 24, they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Now, remember I mentioned that Reuben had this affair. Now he's trying to win back his dad's favor. If you go forward to Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 4. So I, I, like, I like positioning these brothers against Genesis chapter 49. Because in Genesis chapter 49, this is where the father is going to bestow the blessings on all the brothers, right? So you kind of see what becomes of them, how these plans hatch out later. Um, but in 49 verses 1 through 4, you'll see that that memory never shakes. That one sticks with him, right? Dad remembers that one forever. That one, he, ne he never is able to shake that. This, this plan for hatching that he's hatched for bringing his brother doesn't work out. Maybe some other things that he tries doesn't work out. This is a family that's all about trickery. They're constantly trying to trick someone, get over on someone, and we'll see a little bit more of that as we go. And we will return to Genesis 49 um, later to see uh, some, some stories about Judah as well to help us make sense of, of chapter 38. But he never shakes that memory. Now, it's important to remember that there is a sovereign hand of God playing out through men. Because now... That Reuben, though his trickery was to be able to take his brother and return him to the father later, has just saved Joseph's life. Joseph isn't dead now because of Reuben's trickery. So God's sovereign hand is playing out, right? Joseph survives. And this becomes important. Now, I'm telling you that there's a sovereign hand of God playing here. But what I tell you and one dollar will get you any size drink you want from McDonald's. And what I mean by that is if I tell you something and it's not in scripture, then you can ignore it. Because maybe I made it up. Um, maybe it's not true. Maybe I'm wrong, right? And so we should always go to the scripture. Scripture tells us to test all things. And so if a pastor, a leader, an elder, a bishop, an overseer, a friend tells you that something is true, if they're talking about the character of God, if they're talking about the nature of God, if they're talking about the purpose and plan of God, if, you can't, if they can't show you in Scripture, it's noise. Scripture says to test all things. When Paul talked about the people of Berea, he celebrated the people of Berea, um, not because they took what he said and they just sat at his feet and ate up teaching. They said, he said that they took what he said and compared it to the word to see if it was so. And so he celebrated them. So we should be the same way, like Bereans. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I've been trying to avoid calling on Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. I've been wanting to save it. Um, I kind of didn't want to bring it up today. It's so important to this whole story. Um, and it's part of setting our feet in a concrete of God's sovereignty, knowing that God's plan is flowing through all of this. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 is instructive and it's important. And it's Joseph talking in the future to his brother. So I guess, spoiler alert, he lives, the brothers make it too, and they reunite, apparently. I'm ruining that portion of the story. My apologies. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people shall be kept alive as they are today. Now, if you think about the awful things that happened to this person, and we haven't seen them yet, most of them, many of them, we're, we're kind of early in one. Remember, right now, he's sitting in the bottom of a pit with no water in it because his brothers wanted to kill him. His other brother said, actually, shove him in that hole, but he was just plotting to come back later and use him as a pawn to get his father to forget that he slept with his stepmom. But that didn't work out. God meant all of it for good. Even though their intentions were bad, God used it for good. That helps us understand Christ as well, because we know that God 
uses Christ as the sacrificial lamb once and finally for sin, but people did freely to Christ whatever they wanted. So God uses that sovereignly to satisfy his wrath against the sin of the elect. We, in a sense, can, can, be, can become distracted by the details of our life, forgetting that God has a purpose, that God has a plan, and that God has involvement. And that's important, because when we, when we come to these uh, stories, and I often remind, I say stories, I think sometimes that doesn't do justice, though they're stories, these are things that occurred, people that they happened to, these are real situations and real scenarios. Um, and so when we come to these, it's important to realize that God was active and acting here. God is active and acting today as well. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is still involved. He is not a watchmaker who winds everything up and just lets it wind down like a top that spins around purposeless, and then he tries to use the chaotic motions for his purposes. God is sovereign. Our time on this earth, our time in this life is finite, but we are built for infinite purpose in God's plan. Now, what right do we have to say? What right does the vessel have to say to the potter? Why would you make one for honor and one for dishonor? The potter has the right for that. Moses records this story in the book of Genesis, which is an authoritative book about the beginnings and helps us understand who God is and how God laid out his plan. Genesis 3.15 tells us that he had always uh, planned to um, crush the head of the serpent. The rest of the book shows us the, how the plan gets cast and so much space. I mean, we, we're sitting here in Genesis chapter 37 right now. The story starts to resolve in Genesis chapter 50. This is so important to God's plan that we see who he is and what he is doing in this story. There is entirely too much happenstance. There is entirely too much chaos in the lives of the patriarchs. This is a story that's about God, and it solidifies our knowledge about God as sovereign. We read that they conspired to kill him, acting in anger and violence. And, and because these brothers are so capable of it, this should be a terrifying prospect for Joseph. So what do they do? They strip him of his robe. And this, this sense of the stripping of the robe is, is the same. If you were to look to, and I'll give you three verses to, to, to see this same word phrase used in three other places. You can flip there. You can make a note. You can look later. But 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 8 um, says, Now David and his men went up to make raids against the Gerashites and the Grizzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land of old as far as Sur and the land of Egypt. This make raids, going into these towns to raid them, to take over, to, to, to win at battle is the phrase, make raids. Or in Leviticus uh, chapter 1 and verse 6, then he shall flay the burnt offerings and cut it to pieces. That flaying is the phrase that's used for how they removed his coat. Judges chapter 9 and verse 33. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do that idea of rushing the city, storming in, taking over. This is how they treat their brother as they beat him and tear him up and take his robe and throw him into a hole. They cast him as some kind of a animal that they have no care for. Most hunters that I know would probably treat the animal that they hunted better than they treat their own brother. So they've not murdered him, but they've beaten him to a pulp. They've flayed and rushed and raided against him. And they're doing so, I can only imagine, they're doing so just enraged taking out all of their anger as they do this. They're probably exhausted from ripping at him and destroying him and beating him and tearing up that robe that he's constantly wearing, exacting all of their anger that they couldn't even have a conversation with him without becoming angry. And so now they take it all out and throw him into a dry well. 
And what happens next says everything. Verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. What, what in the world? I mean, they just obliterated their little brother. And they sit down for a snack. It's time to carb load. Man, I am so tired from beating that kid. Right? Hand me another sandwich. I mean, I am just exhausted. Are your hands sore? My goodness. He took that punch. Did you hear those sounds? What is with these brothers? And they look up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming. Now, again, pause. Look at the sovereign hand of God. What are they going to do? They've got their brother. They just beat him, tore up his robe. Everybody's got a chunk, maybe, of robe. They're all sitting down for a sandwich. And some slave traders come by. Some traders come by that are on their way to Egypt, of all things. Just happens while they're sitting there in the hole. What are they going to do next with this kid? I don't think their plan extended quite that far. Reuben was going to take him. Reuben's not here right now because he's going to come back surprised in a minute. But Reuben was going to take him out of the hole later and rescue him to his father. So I don't think they had a plan necessarily past this point. But some people happened by. As I said, there's some points in this story of sovereignty to note that he goes to Sechem to try to find his brothers and there happens to be a guy wandering around and says, who are you looking for? And then he tells them where they went. They go off. They see him coming from afar. They plan to, they hatch a plan to kill him. And Reuben says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Reuben has some trickery in the back of his mind. He says, let's, let's not kill him. What if we throw him in a hole? I'm just thinking out loud, spitballing. Then apparently Reuben goes off. They all beat him up, take a chunk of that robe, throw him in a hole, and some traitors come by. And so Judah, verse 26, Judah, who all of chapter 38 will be about, Judah says to his brother, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand not be upon him for he is our own brother and our own flesh. They know it's wrong to kill him. In their heart of hearts, they know. But sell him, they can make a couple bucks and be rid of him. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Well, there you go. That's how Joseph ends up in Egypt. That is the sovereign hand of God. Now, if you're Joseph, that is not very encouraging in this moment to know that that is the sovereign hand of God. Your favorite jacket just got destroyed. You're beat to a pulp. Your brothers did it. You've been in the bottom of a hole. They ate, probably didn't throw you a sandwich, so you're hungry on top of it all. And now you've been given to slave traders for 20 shekels. Is that a lot of money? Don't know. But in that moment, I don't care if I'm him. But it's the sovereign hand of God. Guess what? You might not like that. But guess what? It's true. It's absolutely 100% true. And Romans 8.28, which will come in the future says that God works all things together according to good for his good purposes is also still true. And casting our eyes to the future, you don't have to take my word for it, Genesis 50, 20 reveals that it's true from the very mouth of the person that was beaten, thrown in the bottom of a hole, sold to slavery, and sent off to Egypt. Genesis is an authoritative book of beginnings that makes concrete our knowledge of God as sovereign. Judah, who we'll hear called the lion. We'll look in a little bit and we'll see that the, the scepter will not leave his hand, that kingly lines will come from Judah. Judah suggests, let's at least make some money on this. All of them, patriarchal leaders of tribes of Israel, and this is what they do. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. These guys have a strange kind of moral dilemma with killing him, but they're okay with selling him into slavery. It feels odd to me to read that. I just, I have a hard time with that. But then I step back and I think about my week, my month, my year, 
my own life of living as myself. And, and you can think about the number of times maybe in your own life where you did something that you knew was sinful. You knew that this isn't God's best, but you still did it. Maybe you justified it. Maybe you just kind of ignored the situation and you let it happen around you. And maybe you kind of fooled yourself in your mind that you're not specifically going after it. You're not specifically causing it, but you certainly didn't stop it. It is a strange thing to be a person. Paul himself would talk about this. He would talk about himself as the chief of sinners. It's not that we desire for these things. It's not that we make license for sin. It's not that we continue sinning so that grace could abound. Certainly not that. But there's something about being a person. This flesh is always in tension. There's always this war in us. And there should be. It's right. There's a passage of scripture that creeps me out. Um, it's in the book of 1 Timothy, and I, and I would recommend you uh, underline it. I, if you don't write in your Bible, don't make me write in your Bible. Write it down on a piece of paper, however you do these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Now, I will say, this is about the future. This is about later things. This is about end times. When are those? I don't know, and guess what? Neither do you, and the guy that says he does, he doesn't know either. Nobody knows the hour. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 holds a very important principle, I believe, for Christian living. And it's important to keep this in our minds. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Well, that sounds interesting. As soon as you talk about bad teaching and demons, that's interesting stuff, right? I want to hear about that. But the important part, well, that's important. Verse 2 is where I get creeped out. These people devote themselves to the teaching of spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I even ignore the liars part. What creeps me out is that your conscience can get seared. Maybe, maybe you've had something get seared before. Um, I had a, an injury to my finger, a finger injury I had, where the inside of my the inside of my finger here exploded it popped like a little balloon super gross and then it healed back and there's there's a little scar there on my finger it hurt a lot if you're wondering but when i touch it i can't feel it it's it's the same sense it's seared there's nothing there i got nothing right now imagine that that's your conscience by doing the same thing over and over and over, ignoring the Holy Spirit's reminder of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and continuing and continuing and continuing in sin, your conscience can be seared. You can lose sensitivity. You can no longer be aware of what's going on. That's terrifying. Yes, that's about the insincerity of liars. Yes, that's about the future days. But that's a principle that's true. By ignoring the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, by ignoring the fact that you know that that is sin and continuing in that sin, you can sear your own conscience. Now imagine that God is sovereign, as God is. So many times I think we don't want to deal with our sin because of our stinking pride. Maybe I don't want to humble myself to tell someone I'm sorry that I yelled at them in a very crass way after I blew a hole through a roof because I was frustrated because they kept saying something and saying something and saying something and saying something. <laughs> Those opportunities for humility are growing opportunities in our walk as a believer. And the enemy of our soul would rather that we protect our pride and continue in sin then we just humble ourselves. But God is sovereign over everything. I should be nothing but humble. I could take any opportunity to humble myself. I don't care what I look like. I shouldn't care what I do because I'm sinful and I have pride. Don't hear me like puffing myself up. I am the chief of sinners. What I'm saying is that's the way that we feel. We want to protect our pride. We want to protect the way that people see us. We want to protect the way that people perceive us. And so we don't want to open up and demonstrate that we're a sinful creature. If we can understand God's sovereignty and really let that set like concrete, we're so, we can be so much more secure in our Christian walk. Is this clock right? Is it quarter till? 
We're in a lot of trouble. Verse 29, the first half of the first chapter we're supposed to cover. Reuben returns to the pit. He sees that Joseph's not in there. His little plan on uh, restoring his father's trust in him after he slept with his stepmother is failing. He tears his clothes. Oh, he's mourning now, right? The plan was, let's beat the heck out of our brother and throw him into a hole. And then I'll lie to dad and say, I found him like this later. But now he's tearing his clothes. He's, he's, he's so distraught because his plan's not going to work. He's not so distraught because he just came up at his brother's half naked laying in the bottom of a hole, um, slowly dying in a waterless pit. He's upset because his plan to protect himself isn't going to work. And so he realizes that his brother has been sold. Um, the Midianites we see have, have already, they're, they're, they're going on their way to Egypt to sell him to the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He's going to end up with Potiphar and Potiphar's house, which we'll hear more about next week. In Genesis chapter 38, we take this break from the story of Joseph. And we get this picture of Judah's family. So Judah, the, remember, Judah is the one who says, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's at least make some money off this gig, right? Uh, Judah, the lion, says, let's make some money off this gig. The, the text takes a break, and it brings us to this, this story. Um, I, I think probably if, if you were to survey all preaching of all times, of all books, and all chapters, this has to be one of the most avoided chapters, 38, Genesis. Um, but it's a great opportunity to see the sovereign hand of God. So frequently we don't want to see the ugliness of stories, the ugliness of, of life. But what we see is God working through people who have no regard for God, it would seem. And here's what's one thing that's really interesting. So spoiler alert. If you were to look at the book of Matthew, chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that what we're about to read of in Genesis chapter 38, and I may have to leave that for you, unfortunately, for a little bit of homework to read it on your own, is that the very line of Jesus is coming straight through Genesis chapter 38 in the way that Judah and Tamar, father Perez and Zerah, and this is where Jesus will come through. So in Genesis chapter 38, what we see is that Judah uh, went down and he gets married to a Canaanite, which, um, you know, he's really not supposed to do that. Abraham knew that. Abraham told his servant, hey, uh, go take a wife for my son, but not of the Canaanites. Isaac sent Jacob off and said, uh, get a wife, but not from the Canaanites. So Judah, Judah now, he goes and he marries a Canaanite. She has two kids, Ur, Onan, and Selah. That's three, sorry, counting is a challenge. She has three kids. Um, all of them are now half Canaanite children. And things take a turn as you read Genesis chapter 38. Um, Ur was the firstborn in, in verse 7 of 38. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord puts him to death. Now, of all of the wickedness that we've read in Genesis chapter 38, very rare that the wickedness is so great that God puts one to death, but that's Judas, Judas' son there, put to death. Um, now, his, his son was married, right, to Tamar, and so, um, excuse me, I'm trying to burn through Genesis chapter 38 really, really fast. So apologies here. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, we got lunch downstairs. So uh, I'm kind of excited about that. Um, so now these children are half Canaanite. Um, Judah's sons are wicked. One was put to death. Onan had a duty where he was to take the widowed woman and make an heir. Um, he practiced what I'm going to call some old school birth control um, and purposely worked to not have a half son. And the scripture tells us he, he didn't want to have this half son, even though that was what was supposed to happen so that the, the blessing, so that the, the, the possession, so that the heir and the line would follow through. Um, but he doesn't want to have a half son. So this is, this is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, God takes him out as well. 
Now, Judah at this point has lost two children. He's not willing to do that again. So trickery comes into this family again. He tells this woman, this poor woman, to live as a widow in these widow clothes and this widow house and just sit around kind of separated from everyone, right? Probably has no intentions whatsoever to let his third son go to the widow maker. And so the story continues that Judah was going to go out and shear some sheep. She finds out about this. Tamar finds out about this, that he's going to go shear some sheep. Um, she's probably getting really upset by this point because she's just living. I, in, I don't know what widow's clothes are, but apparently they're not great, right? She's not loving life, not, not enjoying things. Um, and so she devises a plan of herself where she's going to stand at the gate. And when Judah comes by, she's going to act as a, uh, as a prostitute. And she does, and it works because, frankly, Judah's a dirtbag. And so she says, well, listen, if you don't have any money on you why, don't you, why don't you give me something that I can hold and come back and you can pay me later? So he does. He gives her a signet ring, um, his cord, his staff. Uh, so basically she, he says, hey, she says, hey, I'll hold your Pennsylvania real ID. Um, and when you come back and, and you, know, you, you Venmo me, you cash app me, you, you bring me some, some money, then I'll give you your stuff back. And he says, great deal. Next day, he wakes up, and he says, what? That was a crazy night. Uh, I need to get my stuff back. This is a bad situation. So he sends his servant off to go get his stuff back, and uh, she's not there. And there is no cult prostitute that's been hanging out. He's just been had. So when she becomes obviously pregnant, they take her, and they bring her to him. Now, I think this is just incredible. They bring her to him, and he says, okay, well, let's kill her. Because probably this is going to resolve a problem for her. Because remember, at this point, she's the widowmaker. He does not want to expose his last son to this woman. So now he has the opportunity to take care of it. And he says, well, whose kid is this? And she says, I am glad you asked. Here is your driver's license. And he says, she is, <laughs> she is better than I am. And so she bears the very child that we see in Matthew chapter 1. I mean, God's sovereign hand over this is just incredible. And he does it through people who are Jerry Springer, buckwild crazy. You can't make this stuff up. And you wouldn't. I mean, if somebody sat you down and said, hey, I want you to make a story about a God that, should be, that would be worshipped and, and followers who follow after this God. And, and it will control them. It will make them live as civil people. This is literally the book that you wouldn't write. You would never write this stuff. And that, to me... As a person who in some ways knows myself but still has a Jeremiah 17, 9 heart and I know that I really can't know myself, it helps me understand that this is true. Not only does it withstand the test of time, it withstands the, the sniff test. It doesn't come across as a story where somebody's trying to polish this up. This is very unvarnished. Um, I think so much of scripture on purpose has some rough and sharp edges to it and those edges are important and we should not try to flatten them out so that's the story of genesis chapter 38 and why is that there why does it just jump into the middle of this story of joseph well joseph's story is going to go on to genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 and demonstrate that he who subjected himself to all of these things who allowed these things to happen to him and who in a sense trusted god through it who god was with through all of this versus the one who was after his own purposes and went after his own way that is a helpful note for us to understand that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. It, it, it kills you. It separates you from God. Going after your own purpose and your own plan is a fool's errand and a fool's agenda. Um, so much more that we could say, so much more that I was going to say, uh, but here we are out of time. So um, read Genesis chapter 38. We surveyed it really quickly. Um, if you read Genesis chapter 38, I would also encourage you to look at Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, which is the blessing that is bestowed on Judah. And, and juxtaposition that with the way that Judah lived and everything that happened in Genesis chapter 38 and see God's sovereign hand in it. It's the most incredible thing that God brings the kingly line through this guy. It's just a picture of sovereignty and it should encourage our daily lives. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love this word. Um, we can and will, I pray, spend a lifetime enjoying it. Um, certainly could have spent more time today. But God, we thank you for every word of Scripture that you have seen fit to record. God, we thank you 
that Moses so dutifully captured all the details of these stories so that we can know you and see your sovereignty and your purpose and your plan for us, God. Uh, we thank you for all that you do, and we thank you that you've called us. God, if there would be anyone here this morning who, who doesn't know you through your son Jesus, who the Holy Spirit has not uh, called to believe, and that's happening right now, God, I pray that that person would, would turn themselves over to your will, would repent of sin, would turn to trusting in you, God. Uh, for those of us perhaps who have fall, fallen short or who have followed you for a while, God, maybe we're struggling. Um, God, would you remind us that you're sovereign? You're sovereign, God. And, and turning over our pride humbly to your purposes and your will is the safest thing we can do, God. Would you make us be followers because we love you? In Jesus' name, amen.